0: Hello, it's me, Nathan Radke from The Uncover-Up. On this episode, Lee, special guest pod person, Dr. Shelby Lesher, and I set out to investigate the odd and alarming phenomenon of Havana Syndrome, which is a health condition that showed up in American and Canadian diplomats in Cuba and some other countries starting in 2016. However, in order to do that, we first needed to discuss some historical examples that would help us to understand some of the concepts involved. As it turned out, there was a lot we needed to unpack about the nature of radiation, monkey experiments, and mind control devices before we could even start talking about Havana Syndrome. So I made the executive decision to break this episode into two. On this half, we'll be discussing an introduction to radiation, look at the case study of the so-called Moscow Signal Embassy attack that was carried out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and examine the idea that directed microwaves could potentially have a mind-control application. In the second half, which will be its own episode, we'll look at the specifics of Havana Syndrome, propose and analyze three possible explanations for it, and then decide which one is the most likely. But now, let's get to radiation, monkeys, and mind control. This is all the test. Only on test. Test.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Uncover Up. I am one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle. With me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. Hello. But we have what? That's
0: it. That's all I get.
1: That's all you get because we have a special guest. I'm much more excited about our special guest uh, joining us again is Dr. Shelley Lesher from the absolutely wonderful podcast, My Nuclear Life. Hi, Shelley.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to have you back. We are talking about something that you're both going to tell me about. I don't know anything about this strange set of symptoms that started to emerge in Canadian and American embassy personnel diplomats in Havana, Cuba, But you guys are thinking it's maybe some kind of new secret weapon, so tell me about this.
0: Like on a bumper sticker, this is what's going on. Okay. In August 2017, reports start to become public detailing the health issues that are being faced by American and Canadian embassy workers in Cuba. Although the incidents themselves date back to at least 2016. Now this causes a bit of a crisis diplomatically. The Secretary of State at the time was Rex Tillerson, and he called the incidents health attacks. And the symptoms are wide-ranging and disturbing and incapacitating. People have talked about dizziness. They've talked about fatigue. They've talked about chronic headaches, cognitive difficulties. There are people who have had to resign their positions. Like, this is a serious event, whatever it is. To the point where the American government passed something called the Havana Act of twenty twenty one. And Havana in this case stands for helping American victims afflicted by neurological attacks.
2: Wow. I really thought it was named for Cuba. It it actually stood for something?
0: Yeah, but I mean in the same way that the Patriot Act stood for something. You know, it's that thing Wait, where the, the...
2: Patriot Act stood for something?
0: Well, yeah, the Patriot Act the Patriot Act stands for Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. Now, I think we've, we've figured it out. we figured out what the Havana Act stands for. Okay. Now all we have to do is figure out what was going on in Havana and then eventually in other places to other embassy workers around the world. What was going on? Was this some kind of strange attack? If this is a weapon, it would have to be some kind of, like, a a secret invisible weapon. Something along the lines of a, a sound weapon using infrasound or ultrasound, or a radiation weapon using microwaves. Or there could be a third possibility that it isn't a weapon at all, but that, in fact, this is something called mass psychogenic illness. Why don't we start off by looking at the historical example of a time when a secret, possibly weapon, was used against American embassy workers, not in Havana, but in Moscow, for over 20 years. Uh, So why don't we get into something called the Moscow signal?
1: Okay, what was the Moscow signal?
0: Right, so 1953 to 1976, the American embassy in Moscow was being irradiated from a nearby apartment building. Now, before we get into the specifics of that, let's talk in general about embassies, especially when you have an embassy in an, an enemy country. The the embassies of a nation are sometimes hard to separate from the intelligence agencies of a nation. In addition to their official purposes, embassies are often used for spying and as a central location for orchestrating covert actions in a foreign country, that kind of thing. So if you're wondering why an embassy might be a target, you know that if you have an embassy on your soil from a country that maybe you're competing with, you know there's going to be some sketchy stuff going on there. So the CIA would have been heavily invested in that embassy and running a lot of agents out of that embassy. The strange thing is, and this is immediately where, Lee, you and I are going to run out of brain, is that the Russians apparently were shooting the embassy with radiation, but it was an amount of radiation that was well under the maximum safe exposure amount, which is about 5 microwatts per square centimeter.
1: But my understanding is that this was worrisome once it was discovered by the Americans because it was over the Soviet limit of what was considered to be safe exposure. So it was like 10 or 15 times over their safety limit.
0: Yeah, interestingly, the Soviets had a much, much lower safety limit than the Americans did as far as allowable radiation exposure.
1: Can we just qualify what kind of radiation this was? was Because it wasn't nuclear radiation,
0: was it? Well, at this point, shall we if you could pretend that Lee and I know almost nothing.
1: You don't have to pretend hard That's here. not hard.
0: <laughs> so, so try really hard. Pretend that we know almost nothing. What do we need to understand about radiation and the nature of radiation before we even continue with this conversation?
2: Well, radiation is a word that I think People in the public think of differently than people in physics. When the public thinks about radiation, they think about what Lee called nuclear radiation or the radiation that comes from maybe the decay of atoms, something that people are going to get radiation exposure from, like from Fukushima or Chernobyl, something like that. That's not what physicists call radiation. Basically, we talk about electromagnetic radiation, which is just a wave of electric and magnetic fields. And it's a huge bit of fields, starting with uh, low frequency, microwaves and radio waves. This includes then infrared, visible light is considered a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And then finally at the very end is where you get the gamma rays, X-rays, that's what we call ionizing radiation. So this is radiation that has enough energy to knock an electron out of the atom that causes it to ionize. And this is what can cause the, the, the kind of nuclear radiation that, that Lee was talking about.
0: Okay, see already that's very helpful. So is, radiation is, is, it encompasses a really broad spectrum.
1: Right. So theoretically, you would be able to, Shelley, beam somebody with radiation and make them sick, right? I mean, this is this is kind of what exposure in Chernobyl and things like that look like. Theoretically, you
2: could, yes. Okay.
0: See, I, I think part of the issue, it does come down to, as Shelley was saying, the public understanding of what radiation is. Right. And, and I think that there is something in history that we can sort of look to as there so often is that can maybe help clarify things. I, I didn't realize... In the late 70s and early 80s, there was a bit of a microwave oven scare in North America. And Lee, you said your parents even were freaked out about these.
1: Yeah, we came from uh, Western Europe in 86 to Canada. My family was at that time, my uncle especially, uh, very big into the homeopathic, naturopathic, quote unquote, medical scene. And yeah, there was the sense that microwaves were dangerous because they would irradiate your food. We have this colloquialism, right? You would nuke your food. I still say that today. I'm going to nuke my coffee. And it gives you the sense that it's quite dangerous. So I did not, I was not allowed to use a microwave into the uh, early
0: 90s. And in fact, there was a 1977 book, The Zapping of America, Microwaves, Their Deadly Risk, and the Cover-Up. Dr. Lesher, and remember you were under oath, <laughs> is there okay. a lethal deadly risk to microwave ovens because they use radiation? No. Ah, okay. You should tell your parents. So maybe then what we need to do is we need to get into a little bit of a discussion about what the difference is between the microwave radiation that Lee makes popcorn with and the radiation that made my grandfather sick when he cleaned up the Chalk River uh, nuclear disaster.
2: So... Remember how I explained that there was uh, different ends of this electromagnetic scale. And you can look up a picture of the scale on, on the website, which is just called electromagnetic spectrum. And you go from very low energy of a photon, which is light, to very high energy, which is ionizing radiation. The one end is ionizing radiation, you have very high energy photons. This is your gamma rays, your x-rays, and then extreme ultraviolet light. Right under that is visible light, which is where we see. And then there's a whole lot of less energetic photons, which is where you have microwaves. And in fact, microwaves are pretty, they're they're lower energy than what we see. So what were the embassy
0: workers in Moscow being bombarded with them? They were being bombarded with, with microwaves.
2: This is not dangerous. So here's how I'm going to preface it, is that it's not dangerous in terms of radiation. It does not have enough energy to turn an atom into an ion, which means it's not ionizing radiation. Okay. Okay. And ionizing radiation is the only radiation that we consider dangerous. I in see. the way so, so, of what so, people consider radiation. So
0: like a movie version of radiation. If somebody mentions radiation in a movie, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about that ionizing radiation.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's I think it's unfair to the public because as physicists, well, especially as nuclear physicists, we say radiation. What we mean is ionizing radiation because as nuclear physicists, we don't care about any other kind of radiation. Right. So in your
1: expert opinion, Beaming a microwave at people in a building across the street should have no physical impact on them.
0: Five microwatts per square centimeter.
1: Okay. That is very scientific sounding. Thank you for adding that.
2: So instead of just saying, you know, no, it's not dangerous. Let's figure out if it's dangerous or not. Perfect. So do you know what a watt is?
0: It's like a unit of energy.
2: Okay, so I'm going to assume you don't know what an ERG is.
0: I do not know what an ERG is. I also do not know what an ERG
2: is. Okay, so if we use the SI unit or, you know, what everyone else in the world uses except the U.S., that would be a kilogram (laughs) times meter squared times seconds to the minus third. So you're going to, a watt is going to be a kilogram squared times meter squared. Over seconds cubed. It was at this moment that Dr. Lesher started doing elaborate mathematical equations, the strain of which caused Lee and Nathan to pass out momentarily. Once they regained consciousness, the recording session continued. But anyway, just by looking at what you have, that's not a lot. That's not a lot.
0: Exactly so, what I was going to say.
2: So <laughs> Can I say one more thing? Of course. of course. Okay, so what happens? Let's let's do a little thought experiment here what happens when you're nuking your coffee and you put your hand on the microwave door it might be a little warm right
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
2: what happens though if you're across the room do you feel anything no no not at all okay and if you're on the other side of the house
1: definitely not so this is like common a common exposure
2: yeah because a microwave does not have this much
0: yeah yeah, this, right. this must have been like I, a specific device that was used to generate this.
2: Right. But the, the point is, is that you're not, people being exposed to this are not right on top of it. They're going to be, you know, across the street. They're, That's It's right. going to go through multiple buildings. It's going to go through, you know, shielding. It's going to go through a lot of things that you're not just like right on top of this flux of, of radiation.
0: So, I mean, if we just looked at the headlines of this, the Soviets were shooting radiation at the american embassy that sounds Te- like it sounds like an attack it sounds like an assault but And then, it's
1: technically correct
0: and it's technically correct but then once we start to look at the math involved in the actual energy that's being used we see that wait this isn't a dangerous amount this this isn't this isn't going to be something that is dangerous to people's health necessarily but that only makes it weirder and in a way makes it more sinister because if the soviets were bombarding with a lethal dose of radiation in order to sicken people in the embassy. That would be terrible. It would also make sense. It would also be something that we'd be able to say, oh, we can figure out why, we're, why they're doing that. But then the question is, why are they shooting the embassy with this low dose of radiation, which isn't harmful? Because they were obviously doing it deliberately. What was the reason behind this Moscow signal? Whoa. Now, the American government in 1965 thought there's got to be some kind of, of health issue that we're just not paying attention to. So what they did was they launched a top secret study. Because I should point out, at no point did the American government inform the embassy workers that this was happening. They kept it quiet to the point that when they sent doctors in to investigate possible health effects, they called it the Moscow viral study.
1: And they said that they
0: were doing it not because of microwave radiation, but because they were just worried about some of the viruses that they might be exposed to in Moscow.
1: Communist viruses.
0: So they weren't told the real reason for these medical tests. They did a long-term study, and they found that there was no statistical increase in the likelihood of mortality amongst the embassy workers compared to the general population. They did find that there was statistically more likely for the embassy workers to have contracted VD. But... (laughs) that's probably unlikely related to the radiation but then it still I raises think this that's question
2: probably true
0: <laughs> it still raises this question so why were they doing it the official soviet response was they were doing it to try to interfere with american like electronic bugging devices is is that is that a possibility
1: i don't think it's a possibility for a very well, weird reason here the US Embassy in Moscow was such a seat of espionage and counter-espionage. It is amazing. My recollection is the Soviets actually built the embassy and built it with listening devices in the wall. Like they actually they they constructed the whole thing as a giant spy cauldron. And it took the it took the Americans forever to figure this stuff out. There's other quite quaint and cute examples. Uh, One of the embassy officials was given a plaque by the young pioneers, a sort of youth group in the Soviet Union. And it also contained a listening device. And it was hanging in the embassy in, you know, one of their meeting rooms forever. So the only reason I think that this was not a plausible excuse for why they were doing this, was because most of the listening devices there were Soviet listening devices. And if they really did interfere with the listening devices, they'd just be, they'd just be screwing up their own
0: bugs. Which brings up another possibility that this was in some way designed to activate listening devices.
2: Yes, oh, that okay. seems more plausible. It would make sense then that the signal would be to activate the bugs, because if the U.S. embassy, you know, if the employees came through to look for bugs, they wouldn't find any, but then they would be activated. Oh, interesting. And then they couldn't find them. After they swept for bugs. Right. The U.S. employees wouldn't find any. They'd be activated when they needed to. And then if they were if they heard like we're going to come around and sweep again, then Oh, that's that's fascinating. They, they wouldn't be activated anymore.
0: Okay. So so the Moscow signal could then theoretically have been designed to activate Soviet bugs to keep them from being detected when there were sweeps. That's interesting. That is really cool. However. However. There is another option that we haven't considered yet. Okay. It's the weirdest option. It's possibly the Ooh, least... I like it already. It's possibly the least likely option. And so, oh. not surprisingly, it's the option that the American State Department immediately fixated upon. What if this was a form of some kind of remote mind control?
2: Ah, uh, okay. Yes. Yes. That That's the one. That's it. Absolutely. That's the one.
0: I mean, now, now we're done. back on solid ground. That's got to be it.
1: This seems to play into a kind of fantastic narrative that some within the State Department the CIA might have been spinning about the nefarious deeds of the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, I think it's called projection, where you're doing something, <laughs> and then you start seeing other people doing the same yeah. thing, because you assume they're like you. So it could be projection from the American government, who were very, very interested in mind control at this yeah. point in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So there's only one group that we're going to be able to put in charge of a project like this, and that, of course, is DARPA. Right. So back to DARPA again. Of course. So this is Program Plan 562, AKA Project Pandora. The person in charge is a man called Richard Cezero. No background in biology, but he did have a background in like sketchy secret stuff. Nice. They are tasked with investigating the effects of low-intensity microwaves on behavior and general health. Now, it had been reported at this point that the Soviets were interested in the neurological effects of microwaves. Questions like, uh, did microwaves have any long-term health effects on a person's brain? Could microwaves interfere with a person's ability to accurately perform a task like data entry? If you were, like, shooting a secretary with microwaves, might that cause that person to make mistakes in an official report, for example? Okay. And we're getting more speculative here, as we do. Could directed microwaves have some kind of mind control ability? Could directed microwaves be used to deliberately manipulate a person's feelings and experiences?
1: It seems a lot less speculative than Project Stargate, where we're trying to actually, you know, weaponize psychic ability. If I beam some kind of energy beam at somebody's head. So the question is, is any of this, does any of this strike you as reasonable, Shelley? Uh, <laughs> that is to say Nathan's description of what you know what what might have what they were worried about like could you get somebody to could you shoot microwaves <laughs> at someone's head and they would make more mistakes
2: so as he was talking I just had so many questions <laughs> and and the first of which is do they know you're doing it
0: in this situation they would be unaware that you were doing it
2: okay that's that's a big difference, Uh, but my my first concern is you can't shoot someone with energy and expect to impact the inside without impacting the outside. See, that's something I was wondering too. Let's go to your frozen meal. You put a frozen meal in the microwave and you nuke it for a little bit. Is it gonna come out uniformly cooked?
0: No, the outside is gonna be more cooked than the inside, if I put my, mm-hmm. my sad microwave dish in the microwave, then the outside warms up first. The inside is fairly unaffected because uh, I assume Correct. the microwaves have not, have not penetrated that far in to, to, to warm that part of it. So if instead I was going to use my head and I wanted to affect something in my head with microwaves,
2: there'd be some effect on the outside.
0: Would it, would it be a thermal I,
2: effect? Sure.
1: Okay. Okay. So what you're saying here is that if we used anything even remotely strong enough to get anywhere close to going inside your head, you would have a lot of signals coming from the outside of your head, being like, "Wait, my hair's on fire!" or yeah, "Stop! So, stop this!" Right. right. Okay. So it's not plausible that we could sort of secretly send a very gentle beam at somebody far away and somehow even have a neurological effect. We just can't figure out a way to make this into a weapon. Even one that makes secretaries like screw up the... Their data entry. Exactly. Huh.
2: W- well, I mean, with a secretary, if you're if you're focusing on one person, I can see this being a test that you could do, right? If you know that someone is sitting in one place, well, you make them sit in one place. I'm just thinking of my office right here. And there was a microwave beam behind this wall and it's like, two feet away, I suppose you could do an experiment like that. Okay.
0: But, but I mean, you'd, you'd almost, you'd require them to hold their heads so still, like okay. they wouldn't even be able to like move around a little bit without effect. So them.
1: I guess what I'm saying is there's no plausible way for an enemy undetected to create a weapon out of microwaves that they could then shoot at the American embassy in any plausible scenario that we can imagine.
2: Undetected, no, because they'd have to have very, very big machines that I think would be detectable.
0: You know what's very unfortunate about this? This is the second time that we've had Dr. Lesher on. And the last time we asked her, could you build a massive power station under the Great Lakes and then use uh, nuclear explosions to destroy the bottom of the Great Lakes and flood them instantly into this power plant and then generate the amount of (laughs) energy required to then power up a massive particle weapon which would then shoot into the sky and create a a, a kind of a, an umbrella to protect That's us right. from from nuclear weapons. And and Shelley as I recall the answer was no you can't do that. And and if you No, had,
2: but I, I I really wanted it to be true.
0: Because it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and so Dr. Lesher, if you had been there unfortunately maybe you could have prevented the massive waste of resources mm. and and time that was spent to try to develop this in Project Seesaw. And we seem to have come to the same problem now, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to start talking about this Subproject Bizarre, it was, as it was called, where they were trying to desperately figure out an answer to a question that, Shelley, you seem to have already answered.
2: Uh, I think at the time they still hadn't, I mean, 19, in the early 1950s was the first kind of medical accelerators. So perhaps I'm going to cut them a little bit of slack that maybe they didn't, they didn't know as much as we know about about uh, the electromagnetic spectrum and radiation. And but I, I think I'm going to say just DARPA had way too much money.
0: Boy, did they ever! And they had too many rabbits, and they had to get rid of some of these rabbits somehow. So one of the tests. Oh they no! Did, I know this is. The Are part- we going
2: to? Is this the part where we give a warning that that animals? were harmed in, in, in Subproject Bazaar?
0: Yeah, although it's not going to get too graphic. And okay, good. Well, I mean, we'll get to it. So the first thing they did was they tried to see if you could affect a rabbit's heart rate by shooting it with uh, microwaves, and they found there was not much effect. Then they, they did a rat test, where they exposed rats to long-term exposure to low-intensity microwaves. And now we start to see some effects. These rats... They start suffering from, quote, flaccid paralysis and, quote, clouding of the sensorium. Clouding of the sensorium? And flaccid paralysis. Sorry.
2: what does any of that mean? I know what paralysis means, but I don't know what anything else means. Well, flaccid... I know what flaccid and I know what paralysis means, but I don't know what they mean together.
0: I think they got floppy and lazy. So they got floppy and lazy, and clouding of the sensorium means that I think they became confused. Okay. They became confused, and they probably had little rat tasks that they were supposed to do that they were unable to complete as well. However, I should point out that one of the Pandora scientists, a Dr. Lawrence Scher, argued that flaccid paralysis, which sounds nasty, and clouding of the sensorium happened to me in a private conference room whenever the door is closed and the temperature rises. (laughs) So not all of the scientists were that impressed by the flaccid paralysis of the lab rats.
1: Yeah, no, I'm actually thinking about some committee meetings I've been part of.
0: Absolutely. So at this point, DARPA has managed to not affect the heart rate of rabbits. They've managed to give rats flaccid paralysis or just perhaps ennui. (laughs) But it's time now to move to the monkey trials. So here's what we do. Oh, no. No, no, it's okay. They're not going to get badly hurt. Uh, So I'll I'll say that right away. And also, as we'll see, there weren't that many monkeys, which actually is a bit of a problem. So monkeys were exposed to a similar dose of microwave radiation that was produced by the Moscow signal. The protocol was that the monkeys would be trained to perform a series of tasks, pressing levers in response to signals, and then they would get food as a reward for the correct series of actions. Now, the very first monkey who was experimented on had, quote, two repetitive complete slowdowns and stoppages, end quote, after being subjected to the Moscow signal. Huh. So you shoot a monkey with the same Moscow signal, uh-huh. and he becomes worse at pulling levers and stuff.
1: Is the conclusion based on this one trial?
0: Well, C- Cesaro, uh, the, uh, the person who didn't have the background in biology who was in charge of Pandora, said, There is no question that penetration of the central nervous system has been achieved either directly or indirectly, into that portion of the brain concerned with the changes in work functions and the effects observed. So as far as the head of the project goes, they have succeeded. They have proven that the Moscow signal was there to interfere with secretaries doing data entry.
2: Case closed. Was there a control group?
0: Oh boy, this was an uncontrolled experiment. This was part of, like the 1960s wasn't a great time for controls on your experiments.
1: Well, can I, can I ask, Shelly, as a professional in the business, now I know you don't do- Monkey uh, trials. Monkey no. trials or, no. or clinical trials on people, and I, I, I realize that there are or certain- Or flaccid rats. Right, I, <laughs> I realize there's certain different parameters there, but as an experimentalist, like if, if I came to you with this, if I, were, if I were your student and I proposed this as an experiment, Um, what would you say in terms of the the kind of data that I could, or the credibility of
2: the data that I would be producing from this? Well, first of all, how many monkeys are involved?
0: Oh, uh, one. They got a monkey, I'll be honest.
1: Seriously, they did it one time. With a monkey. With a monkey once or twice.
0: Yeah, but there's no question that penetration of the central nervous (laughs) system has been achieved.
2: All right, but wait, we're still... So it's not even... It wasn't even reproducible.
0: Oh, this was wildly unreproducible. So let's briefly talk about how you do a good experiment in very general terms. What are some of the things you want in like a good scientific experiment in, in general?
2: Reproducibility.
0: Reproducibility is crucial. You should be able to do it again and again and again in exactly the same way to make sure that the results are the same, to make sure that something like weird didn't happen in your experiment.
1: Shelly, how many times would you want your own lab to reproduce something before you published it?
0: Yeah, how many monkeys would you want to irradiate?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Shelley.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and remember, you're still under oath. I mean, you're making me think about irradiating monkeys, which I haven't really thought about before. But if I were to radiate monkeys, like you're really putting me on the spot here. I. I I will stand by saying more than once. More than
0: once. I mean, that's fair.
2: (laughs) More than one monkey, and I would have to compare it to more than one unirradiated monkey.
1: Well, that's an important point as well, right, is what happens to the monkeys in a similar situation who are not exposed to the Moscow signal.
0: Yeah, maybe you just got a particularly distracted monkey. There was never a solid baseline established. They They didn't establish how accurate a monkey's work should be. Which seems like a really important thing to say. So they couldn't tell how much had been affected, if at all, by the radiation.
2: So they never tested the monkey before they irradiated it.
0: No. this was a terrible experiment.
2: Wait, there is nothing good. I mean, I think an undergrad could do a better experiment than this.
0: Yeah. no, no, this was clearly uh, just a complete catastrophe from from Jump Street. Although it's not the first time we have encountered an experiment done during the Cold War. That was done extremely haphazardly and poorly and like without using appropriate scientific precautions. The time, though, had come, despite this extremely flawed monkey stuff, it's time to start uh, looking at potential consequences of the human brain. So there was a secret project called Big Boy. Uh, What they did was they didn't subject people to radiation. They didn't like bombard people with the Moscow signal. What they did instead was they went to the aircraft carrier USS Saratoga. Uh, on the USS Saratoga, you had a crew who were working with radar. And they weren't experimenting on this crew. They were just sort of testing to see, because these, these crew members who were working with radar were probably being exposed to a level of radiation pretty much constantly. And so they wanted to find out if that exposure that the crew members had was causing some kind of effect. We're going to get into something called the Fry effect. Occasionally, radar operators did report that they would hear something in their ears, that they would get a clicking or a popping or a buzzing, and then it was established that this was in fact caused by radiation apparently that it was a fairly common thing to get very specific kinds of clicks and buzzes hmm. and pops in your ears when you were operating the uh, the radar set sorry oh.
1: is it coming from the equipment or is it or is it coming from inside me if i'm the
0: radio operator the sound the sound is coming from inside you inside the sound me. is inside your head
1: that is that is this is not a noise
0: that the equipment is making. this is a noise that only you can hear because it's happening inside your inner ear apparatus and
1: this is because of the equipment I'm working
0: on yep yeah. it's called the fry effect okay or the Frey effect How long does it persist it, it doesn't persist it's only during exposure that it occurs
2: Oh okay
0: so
1: so what is it Well, I mean is this the actually functioning Moscow signal have we have we have we found a way to weaponize this after all?
0: Well, DARPA was convinced that they had not only, and here we're going to get a bit weirder, not only had they found a way of weaponizing microwave radiation, but perhaps a way of almost causing schizophrenia in a target. Okay. This is how they, and I think this, this is going to get very strange. So according to a DARPA director memo, The potential of exerting a degree of control on human behavior by low-level, selectively modulated microwave radiation should be investigated for potential weapons applications. Now, it was at this point in the podcast that two things occurred. One, there was a loud whining noise coming from outside the bunker, which made the next few minutes of recording unlistenable. And two, it became clear that we were approaching 45 minutes into the episode and hadn't even really started talking about Havana Syndrome. So instead I'd like to spend some time discussing the specifics of how the fry effect could theoretically have been used as a kind of mind control device and discuss the possibility that it has been. The fry effect is likely caused by heating. Tiny little parts of your ear structures expand slightly when exposed to directed energy waves. This is called thermoelastic expansion. The expansion effect is extremely minor, but since the ear structures are already so tiny, and so sensitive, it causes an audible effect, it causes a noise in the target without much external power being applied. So here's how this would theoretically play out. You would modulate your microwave signal to the point where, instead of making clicks and pops, it would replicate human speech inside a person's head. you could see the potential for a device like this. In a previously classified U.S. Army memo titled Bio-Effects of Selected Non-Lethal Weapons, which was written sometime before 1998, the suggestion was made that this technology in its crudest form could be used to distract individuals. If refined, it could also be used to communicate with hostages or hostage takers directly by Morse code or other message systems, possibly even by voice communication. But while the promise of helping to end hostage situations sounds pleasant and useful, that mention of voice communication is interesting and disturbing. As Lee pointed out to me, if this was possible, you could broadcast a voice claiming to be a supernatural deity into the heads of believers of that deity, and give them instructions to follow. You could make somebody believe that they were hearing the voice of God. Or you could make somebody believe that they had gone mad. You could make someone appear to others as though they had developed a mental illness. And the Army memo does suggest that this sort of thing is within the realm of possibility, claiming that the Fry effect phenomenon is tunable, in that the characteristic sounds and intensities of those sounds depend on the characteristics of the RF energy as delivered. Because the frequency of the sound heard is dependent on the pulse characteristics of the RF energy, it seems possible. That this technology could be developed to the point where words could be transmitted to be heard like the spoken word, except that it could only be heard within a person's head. In one experiment, communications of the words from 1 to 10 using speech-modulated microwave energy was successfully demonstrated. Microphones next to the person experiencing the voice could not pick up the sound. Additional development of this would open up a wide range of possibilities. Later in the memo, the author tells on themselves by stating that in addition to using this technology to send secret messages to hostages, it may be useful to provide a disruptive condition to a person not aware of the technology. Not only might it be disruptive to the sense of hearing, it could be psychologically devastating if one suddenly heard voices within one's head. So there's no question that the US military was interested in this technology. However, as we've seen many times before, there is a world of difference between being interested in a tech and being able to produce and use that tech. That army memo you probably noticed was riddled with phrases like seems possible, and could be developed, and additional development, and if refined, all of which indicate that the research was probably still in very early phases when this memo was released. In December of 2021, bioengineering, medical engineering, and radiology professors from universities in Pennsylvania and California put out a paper asking the question, can the microwave auditory effect be weaponized? They conclude that while the Fry effect is well established and it could be used to produce unexpected and frightening sounds in a person's head, the equipment required would be bulky and obvious, and there are simpler and more effective ways to harass or harm an adversary. And there also remains the problem that Dr. Lesher brought up earlier in the podcast. Could you produce the desired effects inside a person's head without first causing unwanted and noticeable effects on the outside of their head? The entire project reminds me of the work that was done by the CIA during MKUltra to try to produce Manchurian candidate assassins, people who wouldn't know they had been programmed to carry out targeted murders and would be activated against their will to do so. There was a ton of funding and resources spent on this project. But as far as we can tell at this point, there was no demonstrable success. They wanted to be able to do it, but we're not sure they were able to do it. Both MKUltra and the Head Voices program were ambitious, alarming, and wildly unethical. And in both cases, if they weren't used in the field, it wasn't because they were wildly unethical, but because they weren't practical. Because if we have often seen in the past when dealing with covert technologies and procedures, ethics are, sadly rarely a consideration.